Please be seated. Once again, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. The text that we will consider this morning is Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. But before we consider the word, let's go to our God that we might invite him to speak to us so that we're not left to rest upon our own intellectual capacities and observations, but that the Holy Spirit would speak. God and Father, we do come with thanksgiving into this place and even to this portion of our service. We've offered praises and our confessions to you. We've declared the faith that you have revealed perfectly in Christ, that you are worthy to be honored through those expressions of worship. But now as we come to this time of the word, we pray that you would be at work in us according to your promise so that we, your people, would come and give our ear, our minds, and our hearts to you as expressions of our worship. We give them to you so that you would be at work. We pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts so that the word that you would give would penetrate and shape our thinking and therefore our doing. Help us to grow more to be like Christ in accordance with the promise. The work that you have begun through giving us faith, may you strengthen us in faith and that that faith might be evident through the way we live our lives. So the end result is that you would receive praise and glory not only from our lips, but from those through, to whom you send us and who are blessed because of the work you've done in us that they may also join in praise and that our hearts would rejoice as we experience not only your wisdom, but a love that reveals who we are, who you are in this world that we live in. Be at work this time, we pray, Lord, that we may grow in your grace. To you, all praise and glory, we pray in the name of Christ, who is the word incarnated. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Hear the word of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God, may he bless us by giving us understanding. Well, we come this morning to the end of our study of the Beatitudes, at least the verse by verse, point by point, consideration of this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I hope that you have seen and continue to see that all of these Beatitudes are timeless treasures of insight and wisdom. They form a composite to help us to understand what the Christian life in this world is to be like and the character that God has in store for us and expects for us. It is a beautiful picture. Sometimes it may be daunting, but nevertheless, this is God's promise is that as his spirit is at work in us, we grow more and more that this character should be evident in our lives in different degrees. This is what Christ expects from the followers of Christ. But I also hope that you'll see in this particular beatitude as we come to this last one, 
that you will see that it's not only a, a timeless treasure of wisdom, but it is also a, a timely message. Because what this passage does is it addresses some issues that are ongoing in our world even today. If you turn on the news, you are aware that in different places throughout this world, there are believers who are sought out, jailed, or worse, who are killed simply because they are followers of Jesus Christ. If you've been part of a church for any length of time, this is not news to you. You're aware of that. You've heard it. probably can think of some places where this is likely to happen. China is a country that seems to come to the forefront of everybody's mind about where Christians are oppressed and the gospel is rejected. But it might surprise you to find out that on the list of the World Watch put out by Open Doors Ministry, an organization that focuses on the persecution of believers around the world, China is not even among the top 25 nations that are the most opposed to and have a history and are presently oppressing the Christian church. The top five, according to Open Doors, is number one is North Korea, and it has been for several years, which is quite stunning in the fact that they don't have any faith, so I'm not sure exactly what they are afraid of. Uh, but it is the, they have the most horrendous record of their treatment of believers, even while uh, across their border in South Korea, the gospel is flourishing, producing fruit, and the South Koreans are sending missionaries all around the world. The second uh, on the list is Iraq, followed by Eritrea, Afghanistan, and Syria. And you notice that three of the top five are all in the Middle East, and that's what we see on the news. It's, it's part of the day, and we're reminded that believers are being persecuted. And so it's a timely message so that we are aware, that we are reminded of what God has to say about this, what's going on, the oppression, the persecution of his people. But I also find it a timely message for no one else but for me. Because the first time, for the first time in my life, I wonder whether we as American Christians might experience even a taste of persecution sometime within our lifetime. Now, I, I say that, and I'm uncomfortable in saying that because, frankly, I'm, I'm not an alarmist. And I kind of make a hobby out of mocking, whiny, sniveling Christians who think that every time that somebody treats them rudely that they are facing persecution for the sake of Christ. It may be evidence of my lack of sanctification, but it's fun, um, never and, um, and, uh, and so I just, as Americans, we don't get it. And we kind of gloss over this passage, kind of loosely apply it to ourselves, and don't understand. But I'd say, though, one of the things that prompted me was a conversation that took place in our Supreme Court last summer. The Washington Post records in an article from May 28th of last year, while the Supreme Court was considering the definition of marriage, uh, Justice Samuel Alito asked the um, one of the administration representatives, the Solicitor General, um, Donald Verrilli, that if the definition of married, marriage is, and family is changed, will Christian colleges and churches then be subject to the loss of their tax-exempt status for failure to comply? And then he went on and said further, because frankly, tax-exempt status is a privilege, it's not persecution. 
Will they be subject to criminalization if they do not participate? Will they be subject to violation of civil rights and therefore of others and therefore subject to the punishments that are appropriate to the violation of civil rights? And the Solicitor General's response, at least to me, was somewhat concerning because he said, I don't know. I don't deny that. It is going to be an issue. And so from that time, I began to wonder. Now, I do have to admit, and I, and I have to confess, and I remind myself of this regularly, that statement is not a threat that persecution is coming. It's not a warning. It's not something that is a guarantee. He simply said he doesn't know. And I have to remind myself that whatever transpires will be more complex than my fears, whether they are rational or irrational. But we are not presently under persecution, and I'm not saying that we will be. I'm just saying and confessing that as I read this word this week, I had to wonder for the first time if this will become more pertinent for me and for you than it has been ever in the history of our country. But then I have to come back and regardless of what happens, realize God is in control, God is sovereign, and God has spoken to this in this particular word. And what he has said to us is very simple, even if it's not stunning. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so for me, that's the final word. That's what I need to get my mind around, that God is aware of this. God has already ordained whatever is going to come to pass. He is in control of all things. And my responsibility as a follower of Christ is not to worry about what might happen or that people who do not follow Christ act in ways that are contrary to Christ, but how is my life going to be conformed to the will of God as he has instructed it and start to focus on God's work rather than my fears. And so as I look at this particular passage, there are a few things that stand out that I think that we need to consider this morning. And the first thing that is important for us to recognize is this, is that followers of Jesus should expect persecution as a natural, consequ natural consequence of following Christ. That's what we signed up for according to this verse. Jesus is saying, in a very flat-out way. You ought to expect that. Believers of Jesus ought to expect that persecution comes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's nothing new. In fact, all of church history tells us that it's been going on. Go back to A.D. 30, A.D. 40, and we see in the earliest chapters of the book of Acts the same thing that perhaps some of us fear was taking place, and yet it didn't stop the growth of Christ's church and the advancement of the gospel. But in Acts chapter 7, we read of a man named Stephen who was a deacon in the church in Jerusalem, standing before not a government oppressive group, but a religious oppressive group, which is an important reminder for us, is that not all oppression, not all persecution comes at the hand of the state. In fact, some of the most heinous things that have happened in the history of the world has happened by religious people and including the church upon other people. And so if you live with fear and you are concerned about what might happen, we also ought to be humbled and realize the church has a lot to repent of because we have done far worse to people than what we fear may happen to us. And here's an example of it. But Stephen is not really giving a justification for himself, but in another sense he is expressing his justification theologically. In other words, he's not apologizing for anything, he's just declaring the reason for his hope. And in a beautiful speech before this religious leader, he testifies to the reason that he has hope in Christ Jesus because God has loved him through Christ. And the end result, those of you who are Bible students know, is that the people angry 
and bitter at this kind of defiance of their political correct pressure, they stoned him to death. And then in the first verse of chapter 8, which continues this same scene, there is really a, a remarkable, if not somewhat chilling, statement that reads simply, and Saul approved of his execution. And then chapter 8 tells us of the commission that this Saul had. We know him better as he was later converted and became known as Paul and became the greatest missionary in the history of the world, perhaps the greatest theologian as well as his book of Romans is the greatest treatise of our understanding of how God works in the hearts and the lives of people and then throughout the world. But at this point in his life, Saul was no better than a terrorist who was given permission by both religious and civil authorities to go out and seek people who believed in a way that made him uncomfortable. And he went after anyone who believed in the name of Jesus Christ with the sole intent to jail them, kill them, and eradicate the whole of Christianity. Now, again, we are reminded of this, and this is important for us to consider, even as we're watching the news, as people are experiencing different, that Apostle Paul was no better than Osama bin Laden or any of the ones that you see on the news that are beheading the believers there. That was his heart, that was his state, that was his intent, and that was where he found his glory. And if nothing else, it reminds us that how we ought to be praying for the people who are doing this evil stuff in the world because God brought Paul against all possibilities into the faith and used him in a powerful way and there's no reason to believe that he won't and can't use others who are involved in terrorism right now and so we need to see things with God's lens even though it's evil God is still at work and we need to get our lives in line with God's plan nevertheless there's no way to describe Paul's life other than evil he describes it that way himself after his conversion but he was a zealot whose intent was to eradicate those who followed Christ, killing those he could, scaring others back into place if they were able to. Now, throughout history, there have been any number of heinous acts against Christians. Some are very well known. Perhaps among the most chronicled came from the hands of Nero, who ironically, the Apostle Paul would later suffer. Nero had a couple of different ways in which he would like to perpetrate his evil against those who were followers of Christ. One of his favorite ways was to wrap the Christians up in, in animal skins and then dip them in blood and then set them outside to be devoured by wild animals. His other favorite, and probably a little more, at least from my understanding, a little more indicative of his personality, of his narcissism, is he would take Christians, simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ, he would douse them in oil, and he would stand them up in his garden and light them on fire so that he could see his gardens at night, impressed by what he had planted, illumined by Christians as they burned to death there on the spot. Now, there are many other uh, stories of Christians who have suffered persecution for their faith. Not all are as well known as that. Fox's Book of Martyrs gives us a wonderful chronicle of stories, or a list of stories of things that have happened in long-ago days. A book that came out, well, it's probably been 20 years now, and I'm not sure if it's even published, but you can probably find it in used bookstores. It's called Jesus Freaks by the, the, the group DC Talk. They've taken not only old, but even more 20th century stories of persecution uh, and martyrdom of Christians from throughout the world, put them together in a book to be reminded of how not only Christians are treated, but more important, 
how Christians have responded and have been preserved in their faith to the glory of God. And some, and probably most, are totally unknown and we won't know of their stories or their names until we meet them in heaven. But what every one of those stories has in common is this, that someone or some group of people intentionally set out to systematically punish and eradicate the Christians simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about people who just simply experience suffering. Suffering is common to all people, whether they are believers or not. If we live in this broken world, we will experience suffering of some form. And so if you're suffering, it's not necessarily persecution. That's one of the key things that we need to understand that we'll look at here in a moment. But it's, Jesus does not have in mind simply suffering. That's, these people were targeted for persecution which the dictionary defines as a program or campaign to exterminate, drive away, or subjugate a people based on their membership in a religious, ethnic, social, or racial group. They were targeted because they were followers of Christ. But the definition also causes me again to pause because by that definition, and history does bear this out, Christians are not the only ones that experience persecution. People experience persecution for all sorts of reasons, and for whatever the reason is, it is always ugly, it is always evil, and it is always ungodly. But in this verse, and even Jesus is teaching elsewhere, he reminds us that as believers, we should have a mindset that expects that persecution is a real possibility for us simply because we're followers of Christ. Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 15 said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute, persecute you also. And so we see not just in this passing verse in the Beatitudes as Jesus is teaching what the Christian life is about, but throughout the scriptures, very clearly, Jesus is saying, if you have signed up to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have signed up and should rightly expect persecution in your life. Now, that does beg this question, which we won't be able to explore, but it's an important question for every one of us to be pondering. Why then do so few American Christians ever experience persecution? Genuine persecution. We need to be asking ourselves that. Now, there are a multitude of answers to that. For one, I don't think that the fact that Jesus said that we should expect persecution means that every person who's a follower of Christ is going to always experience persecution. In fact, being a follower of Christ, exhibiting the Beatitudes in our lives, God says in some circumstances, we will find favor with the people who are around us, believers and unbelievers alike. And so it's not a statement that every one of us is going to experience persecution for our lives, and perhaps that's one of the reasons that we have generally been spared. But we can't just adopt that answer and assume that there is no other answer, and frankly, I'm more convinced that the answer is more that we have become so much like our culture that we don't rub anybody the wrong way, that we are so unlike Christ and so like the world that we won't bother anybody and they don't want to bother us. In which case, our lives are not marked by 
Christ, they are marked by ease. And the gospel simply becomes our AFLAC policy, the supplemental insurance that enables us to feel good, comfortable, hope. We've bought into the lie that no matter what we say doctrinally, that God's job is to help us to have our best life now. And the Church of Jesus Christ in the West is largely impotent because of it. Either one is true. And I'm not indicting you personally, but we have to ask the question, why have we not experienced persecution? But the second thing we need to also see from what Jesus says here, and it's very important. In fact, I suspect this is where many of us as Christians in the West get this wrong. But Jesus tells us the blessed, when he says blessed are, the blessed are those who are persecuted for Christ's sake, not simply those who are persecuted. I love the way that New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner puts it. He says, it's important that we get in trouble for the right reasons. And he's pointing out something that is very important. Christians may experience levels of persecution but it's not always for the reason that we think. Sometimes people reject us and say bad things about us because we're jerks. If you're one of those people who's gonna go out to lunch after church today and you think that it is a good thing to give one of those tracks for your server that is, looks like a folded up $20 bill and your rationale is that the reward of heaven is far greater than any tip that goes along with your, your little bill and so you leave that and she thinks it's a tip and it's not, and you go back next week and she spits in your food, you're not being persecuted for righteousness sake. You're persecuted because you're a jerk. <laughs> and there's a lot of things that we do that are not necessarily sinful, but that bring people's rejection of us individually and of the church. And their response to us is not because they see Christ in us but perhaps because they don't see enough of Christ in us. And Bruner's right. If we're going to be in trouble, we need to be in trouble for the right reason. And Jesus touches on that in this. This is the only beatitude you'll notice that has its own commentary. And in that commentary, there's a significance here that is easy to overlook. But in verse 10, where we read the, the basis of the beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in the commentary, it's interesting Verse 11, we'll continue with the whole thing. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, which is part of what we have to keep in mind here. And so what that commentary is talking about is these are some of the forms through which persecution uh, may express itself, but the accusations are false on my account. In other words, as he's repeating the beatitude, which says first, for righteousness sake, Jesus is saying for my sake. One New Testament scholar, I think, wisely pointed out, what this tells us is that righteousness at its depths and Jesus in his person are equivalent. In other words, we're talking about the same thing. There is no true righteousness apart from Christ. And there is no righteousness if it doesn't make you look and act more like Jesus. And so to be persecuted for righteousness is to be persecuted for Christ's sake. And so what Jesus is saying is something very specific. When we, though we should, experience, uh, should expect persecution, if persecution comes to us, it is for very specific reasons. 
It's not merely because we have done things that bother people. It's done things because they are seeing Christ in us. Otherwise, while our behavior may not be sin, nor is it based on righteousness. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones had a, a tremendously insightful point to this that resonated with me so much that I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to read extensively from what he says. But one of the things that he made the distinction of is that Jesus is also saying that when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake is not the same thing as being persecuted for a cause. Because I can't do better. And because you can argue with Martin Lloyd-Jones when you get to heaven. He doesn't have any emails. I'm going to read from him. This text does not mean blessed are those who are persecuted for a cause. There is a difference between being persecuted for righteousness' sake and being persecuted for a cause. The two things often become one, and many of the great martyrs were at one and the same time suffering for righteousness' sake and for a cause. But it is not, does not follow that these two are always identical. There have been men, some very well known, who have suffered and have been put into prison and prison camps, concentration camps for religion. But they have not been suffering for righteousness' sake. We have to be careful about that distinction. What we must realize is that this does not mean suffering for religio-political reasons. Now, it's simple truth to say that there were Christian people in Nazi Germany who were not only ready to practice and live the Christian faith, but who preached it in the open air, and yet were not molested. But we know of certain others who were put into prisons and concentration camps, and we should be careful to see why this happened to them. And I think if you drew that distinction, you would find it was generally something political. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, I'm not attempting to excuse Hitlerism, but I am trying to remind every Christian person of this vital distinction. If you and I begin to mix our religion and politics, then we must not be surprised if we receive persecution. But I suggest it will not of necessity be persecution for righteousness' sake. This is something very distinct and particular, and one of the greatest dangers confronting us is that of not discriminating between these two things. And as we look as a people to our land, and perhaps that some of us are experiencing fears, we need to be very clear and make that distinction. Now understand, it's not a matter of saying that we're talking about people that had necessarily done things that were wrong or even sinful. In fact, their causes were right and noble and just. But there is a distinction sometimes between the political expressions and the gospel and the clear godly expectations. As believers, we are not only free, but we have a responsibility for the good of our neighbor to promote that which we believe will be best in accordance with what God has commanded and will bless the people who live around us. But not all of our tactics and not all of our positions and not all of our causes are the same as the cause of the gospel. And when we experience persecution for our political expressions, it still may be wrong and may be evil, but that's not what's in view here. 
Now, just to lower some of the blood pressures that I'm sure have risen already, let me finish with what Lloyd-Jones has to say here. I am not saying that a man should not stand for his political principles. I'm simply reminding you that the promise attached to this beatitude does not apply to that. And the call in our lives is not to avoid politics or to promote politics. It is to seek God and what he would do for us and at the same time constantly be aware of that distinction between what God has clearly said and what we believe to be best. And I don't have time nor the capability of delineating all of those. And I, wouldn't, I would say that most of us or some of us may not be in agreement in some of the air anyway. But I'm going to give an illustration of the difference. Supporting and protecting life at every phase is always consistent with what God has designed and for which Christ has died. Amen. A tax code is man's concoction of the best way that we can run a government. It doesn't make it wrong, it doesn't make it foolish, and it doesn't mean that there are foolish and evil and others that are informed by our understanding of the scripture. But you cannot equate the two. And so if your cause is something that is more political and your rationale is because you're trying to bless people and you're persecuted because of that, it is not the same, I think, what Lloyd-Jones is saying and I think consistent with what Jesus is saying, as standing for something that is the gospel and clearly in line with the gospel. And what is important for us to understand is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for Christ's sake. We need to make that distinction. And that simply doing what we believe to be right, even and being based on biblical principle, does not therefore baptize and authorize us to do whatever we want to do. Our zeal is not what is in view here. And one of the most glaring and heinous examples that I can think of where a professing Christian has gone wrong happened a little over 20 years ago in Pensacola, Florida. On July 29, 1994, a defrocked Presbyterian minister, PCA, went to the same seminary I went to, a 40-year-old named Paul Hill, opened fire in the direction of a women's clinic in Pensacola, Florida, killing an abortion doctor, a person that was walking with the doctor, and another person who, I don't know whether they were a bystander or they were, for whatever their purpose was there, but are wounding the third person. His cause was pro-life, noble and godly. His zeal was evil. The consequence being that he was not only arrested, but nine years later he was executed and is the first, and so far as I know, the only person in the history of the United States to be executed for executing an abortion doctor. He did not suffer for righteousness sake. He suffered for his evil. Regardless of his motive, regardless of how noble the cause, it doesn't justify, and therefore, he suffered at the hands of the state. Persecution is never, an, persecution of righteousness and the cause is never an excuse for evil, no matter how noble our cause is. 
Persecution for Christ's sake is when the Christian experiences hostilities simply because they remind people too much of Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we know then if our experience of persecution is for righteousness sake or for some other reason? And while not exhaustive, one of the primary ways is by constantly checking our conduct against the word of God in community with other believers who may be able to get a hold of our zeal and point us in the right direction or embolden us when we may fear. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness that they remind people of me and we act in the same way as Christ. But now we have this question. If we're to expect persecution and whether or not we experience it in our country or in our lifetime or not, how are those who are followers of Christ to respond when persecution comes to them, when they are unjustly targeted and punished simply because of the evidence of Christ in their lives? How does Jesus expect us to respond? And it's not the way that I would want to, not with retaliation, but with rejoicing. Jesus says in what is, what I would consider in many ways, an absolutely ridiculous statement. When this happens, rejoice and be glad. Now, I'm not trying to poke fun at Jesus because, you know, he reminded me my ways are not your ways. And this is one of those areas where it's just quite clear. Um, he has his instincts. I have mine. They are not the same. One of us is wrong. Um, and the fact that if I asked you what your instincts were and most of you would vote with me, that just makes you all wrong, too. Um, but this is not some grin and bear it. This is not what he has in mind. And while it may be unnatural, it is not unreasonable why Jesus is calling us to rejoice. And he gives us a clue even in this particular passage. There are any number of reasons that we should rejoice and be glad in, what, um, in, in persecution when it comes our ways. But to put it in the most succinct way, it's partly because... It is a certification of authentication of the genuineness of our faith, and the other is because our reward is great. Let's start with the certification of authentication. See, if they are seeing Jesus in you, well, that's actually an authentication. If the Christian life is actually lived out in a way that is poor in spirit, where we recognize that I have nothing, and I'm humble because I'm so aware of the reality of my own sin in my life, if that's my view and the humility in my life, well, then for somebody to see Christ in me to a point that it ticks them off is actually an affirming thing. God is at work in me even as he's promised. The early believers, we see it in, in, in the book of Acts in chapter 5, they, having the right view of their sanctification, they kind of got together and they talked about what they were experiencing and then they rejoiced because they were found worthy to experience persecution for the sake of Christ. And so it's simply in one sense the authentication, Christ in us, and it reminds us that God's at work in us, perhaps in ways that we were not aware. And it is part of the spiritual growth process. We talked about it, and we declared it in our confession, and James talks about it in the very beginning of the letter that he wrote. And it reminds us of the authentic process of becoming more and like Jesus. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so we experience the trials. Not only does it validate that we look like Christ or we more and more look like Christ, there's something in us which should be encouraging. It's also a reminder that the promise that God who began something is seeing it through to the end. Even as Peter declares, part of that's what happens is that it lets us decide and it burns off that which is not of Christ of our lives. I mean, there's nothing that is going to help you understand, am I really giving my heart to Christ or not? In our culture, it's kind of hard to say. Let somebody come to a gun and said, deny Jesus and live or confess him and die. At that moment, you have a pretty good idea of where you stand in terms of your faith, right? It is life or death. And so it, the persecution that we experience for righteousness sake, not for being obnoxious, but for being like Christ, reminds us of the authenticity of our faith. And through that, others are able to be blessed even as, other, as some despise us. But also it is because of the promise, and Jesus alludes to this in this passage. For great is your reward in heaven. We're told that our promises are greater promises than even the people in the Old Testament have. But there is something better. All the reasons that we would be inclined to cower and be afraid and, not, and deny Christ is so that we can have certain things in this life, right? But what Jesus is reminding us is this life is not all there is. And we will have what we long for and even more because of the greatness of the reward that ours is in heaven. I'm going to wrap up here with this. I always stand somewhat amazed and convicted when I hear believers from churches that are in parts of the world where oppression and persecution is taking place, the, the suffering church. Because the greatest fear that those Christians have is not that they will experience persecution, but their greatest fear is that they will be like us in the West. And when they're asking for our prayers, they're not asking us usually for the persecution to stop, but the desire that you hear from believers in that heart, in that part of the world, is that they would be found faithful to the end, that they can experience the joy of their faithfulness in Christ. And yet I look at my own heart and my own life and my own prayer life and I have to confess that most of my prayers regarding suffering are not to prepare myself but to avert it coming. And all my prayers are lacking for believers in other parts of the world but even when I am praying the majority of those prayers are not for their faithfulness but for what I consider to be merciful that they would be able to escape it. But as I look at this passage and realize how wrong my attitude and my heart is to entertain fears that are rooted only in cursory statements in politics as if that has more to say about our life than God who created all things. I need to reorient my heart, my mind, my life to the promise of God who has declared, you're blessed because great is your word, is your reward and greater still is our God. Let me pray. Father, we do pray that you would be at work in our hearts to reorient us to your way and that you would prepare us to see things your way and to live in the world your way. Help us to understand that the believers in persecution are not withdrawing from the world but continue to engage it for their lives are like Christ laid down for the sake of those who despised him. May we also not live in fear of what may come but be more driven 
by the glory of Jesus who loved us and gave his life to terrorists, to hateful people, to people like us. May that love consume our hearts and minds. I pray in Christ. Amen.